Can we turn the lights up a little bit up here? Seems a little dim. Whoa, hey there. <laughs> easy, easy. Okay. Well, hey, um, the rhythm of the series that uh, we're in right now called Life in the Balance is leads us back to uh, a psalm of disorientation today. So remember, we're kind of going through this cycle of orientation, disorientation, reorientation. So today we're going to be talking about disorientation. So those times in our life when everything seems to kind of be going off the rails and we're wondering what in the heck God is up to. And sometimes disorientation is something that we go through for a season. Sometimes it's something we experience daily. Sometimes it's something we experience multiple times a day. We live in a broken and disorienting world. So it's no surprise that we get sucked into its vortex on regular intervals. And the psalm that we're going to be examining today is Psalm 88, and it's been called the saddest of the sad psalms. So yay, huh? It's called the ultimate lament. It's this crushing cry of despondency and darkness. A kid I met in college um, uh, was from Colorado, and he said that he came to Christ um, at a church in high school called the Happy Church. No joke. <laughs> that was the name of the church. Now, my guess is that the Happy Church didn't spend a whole lot of time in Psalm 88. Because uh, it's, it's tough to get through. So uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to that. It's page 848, Psalm 88. First off, it's really important when you're reading the Psalms that you pay attention to if there's an introduction. Okay, it can give you a lot of context into, you know, what's kind of going on behind the scenes. So far, we've taken a look at several psalms of David. And so if we can piece together the stories of his life with the psalms, we kind of get an understanding of, oh, okay, that's why his, his mood, his aura was there that day as he's writing this based on what was going on in his life. And so today it says that it's written by a son of Korah. It says that it's a mascal, which means uh, an enlightened instruction, okay? It's going to instruct us on how to discuss a mood and how to handle and navigate that mood we might find ourselves in. Finally, it says that it's written by Heman. Scripture tells us that he was alive during uh, David and his son Solomon's reign. So just time frame wise, um, he was a gifted musician. In Scripture, we learn that he was a servant of the king he was known for his wisdom and his exceptional family. So all that to say he had a lot going for him. He was blessed and talented and well-respected. So have you ever had a day that starts out really well, and then everything just kind of goes south <laughs> for whatever reason? You step out the door, your kids wake up, you know. Uh, you, you step into that office at work, and all of a sudden, you know, your good day just kind of goes to pot. Well, let's look at verse 1 and 2 to start with today. It says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. So, man, that opening line starts out so well, right? It seems so optimistic. And this is a person who has experienced the saving hand of God in his life. You can tell that's the, kind of the place he's coming from. 
He knows what God is capable of doing. But that sentiment doesn't last very long. Because <laughs> then it shifts into, hey, day and night, I'm crying out to you. Okay, so this prayer is one, it's consistent. <laughs> and it's passionate. And there's a lot to learn from just that little sentence in terms of our posture as we approach God. Would our prayer lives be described as consistent and passionate? Two good qualities there. As we move on to verse 2, the writer essentially says, Hey God, I hope you're listening right now. Let's look at verse 3. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. So we quickly find that this is a very serious state of grief and urgency. And immediately as I was reading this, I was taken to the words of Jesus in the garden in Matthew 26, 38. Jesus, the cross is just before him, and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I learned this week that a lot of times this psalm, Psalm 88, is paired together with another psalm that's kind of associated with the cross, Psalm 22, for Good Friday services, and you can see why. Jesus understands this level of agony. So let me ask you this question. What does it feel like to be overwhelmed with troubles? What I'd love to do is have everybody just kind of close their eyes right now, if you could. And let's just take a moment to connect with the last time that you felt like that. Can you go back there for a moment to feel the weight of that pain and disorientation, that moment in your life when you were overwhelmed with troubles? Help me with some descriptions here. What did that feel like at that time? How would you describe the, the disorientation? Anyone willing to share? Yeah, Dave. Hopeless, yeah, spiraling, yeah, out of control, yeah, Gary, every encounter was a battle, yeah, you have one back there, self-hate, oh, suffocating, okay, yeah, suffocating, good, anybody else, yeah, Paralyzing, okay? Yeah, just not sure where to go, what to do. Good. Yeah, we've all been there, right? 
And we can see that this is a person who is literally on the brink of death. And we hear this general sense of a lack of hope. There's no mention of the afterlife, no mention of this hopeful eternity. And we have to remember the Psalms are written at a time in our faith that's pre-Jesus's earthly ministry, right? So before he's been resurrected from the dead and some, there's some clear teachings on heaven and our eternal destiny as his followers. So it's a different perspective that they would have had then than we have now. And so the agony and the fear and the uncertainty of death is heightened at this time. And the writer is crying out, I can't handle this anymore, God. Where are you? And it only gets worse from here. Verse 6. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. So now things are getting pretty theologically interesting. Because in those three verses, the psalmist is basically accusing God of being the source of his suffering. Saying, you did this to me. Have you ever been in that headspace in your life? Where you're kind of wondering, hey, is this just a really, you know, tough streak of bad luck in my life? Or is God actually orchestrating these unfortunate events? Because at the very least, he's allowing them to happen. Right? Because he's sovereign. He's in control of all things. He could intervene and stop them. He has the power to do that if he wants to. But then we also have to hold that intention and get in the discussion of free will, right? And the consequences of sin and living in a fallen world. Because things are broken, bad things are going to happen. God can't intervene and save every person all time from every bad thing happening, right? Some of this has to just play out. Because we're sinful, we're surrounded by sinful people in a broken world. It can get pretty confusing in these seasons of disorientation to figure out why all this stuff is happening and who, if anyone, is to blame. In verse 7, we see a little window into some perspective. The writer takes some ownership for his sin, says that God's wrath is deserved. He doesn't say that God's judgment is unfair. And the second half of the verse gives us some powerful imagery of what the psalmist is feeling. Have you ever been, uh, how many of you have ever been to the ocean where there's pretty strong tide coming in and a pretty strong undertow and you've been out in it? <laughs> okay? You know what that feeling is like. When you're in those moments, you know, you're 
one wave hits you and you kind of stumble around and get disoriented and, and then just about the time you get up and kind of try to right yourself and, and catch your breath, boom, another wave hits you again and, and tosses you around. I remember I was on vacation with my best friend when we were 12 and we went out to um, Long Beach, California to hang out with his great uncle for a few days. And um, his uncle went to work and the two of us, 12-year-olds, we just walked four blocks down to the beach and just hung out in the ocean all day, right? Different era back then. So we're in the beach and we're kind of body surfing and Long Beach, if you've ever been there, it's, I mean, it's a pretty big port, so there's just big ships coming in all the time. And so when you would see a big ship coming in, you knew in a couple minutes, these waves are going to get huge, right? So, you know, we'd kind of hang out and see, oh man, here, here one comes, we'd get out in it. And man, I remember this one time I just got picked up and just slammed down into the sand. I mean, it's just like my head just like went about, you know, five, six inches into the, the beach. And I'm just tumbling over backwards and, you know, trying to get myself up and, and okay before the undertow was really strong and the next wave was coming. And it was, it was kind of scary there for a moment, right? At that point, I probably weighed about 65 pounds. But it's not a situation you want to stay in long. You can handle it for a little bit, but you don't want to be in that volatile of a situation for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, back to back to back. The message translation of that verse 7 hits pretty hard. It says this, I'm battered senseless by your rage, relentlessly pounded by your waves of anger. It reminds me of Job's words in chapter 6 when his life is falling apart and he's asking some of the same questions that the psalmist is. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, he says, If only my anguish could, could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. It's a scary place to be to feel like God is against you. When life has battered us so much that we begin to lose perspective on God's goodness towards us. And verse 8 kind of continues that spiral. He says, God, you isolated me. I'm friendless, lonely, trapped. Have you ever lost friends during a troubling season in your life? When you needed someone most? but people were just kind of bailing on you for whatever reason. That's a really painful and disorienting place to be. You ever get the feeling that your friends just can't seem to handle your life being a mess? Maybe you've been a friend where you've thought, I'm not sure I can handle 
my friend's mess. The second half of verse 8 raises some interesting questions. He says, you've made me repulsive to them. Some commentators um, think that maybe uh, this writer was suffering a disease like leprosy that would have caused kind of a repulsive state, which also would have, you know, counted for the isolation he was feeling because he would have to have been removed from his community. Kind of makes sense with a lot of the near-death language that is used up to this point. So whatever he means by that, Jesus can relate to his pain. He can relate to all of us. On the cross, his closest friends abandon him. Luke 23, 49 says it like this. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. As Jesus was beaten and flogged and crucified that day, the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And that lonely disfigured and despised Jesus cried out the words of the psalmist David from the cross my God my God why have you forsaken me had God forsaken Jesus of course not but in that moment of pain and desperation it sure felt like he had Jesus was honest about his feelings in his lowest moments. And so that should give us courage to cry out as well. Now we're going to skim through verses 9 through 12 just for time's sake, but I'll read it for you. It says, I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness and destruction? Are are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Basically, he's saying to God, hey, God, if you kill me, how am I going to praise you? I can't do that if I'm in the grave. If you don't answer me now, what awaits me? The grave, darkness, destruction, oblivion? Again, this theology of resurrection and heaven is pretty underdeveloped at this time in history. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of hope here. But as I was reading this, I really felt like verse 13 was the key. Let's look at 13 and 14. But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Verse 13 starts, but. Despite this overwhelming sense of 
hopelessness, I'm coming back to you. And I'm crying out for help. Kind of reminds me of, of Peter. We looked at uh, the Bread of Life series in John 6, you know, where he says, where else would we go? You have the words of life. So I'm coming back. And it made me wonder, where do we turn in moments of darkness? Some people who call themselves followers of Christ come up against a, a wall, a season of disorientation in their life, and honestly, they just never recover. And they just kind of wander off, not able to reconcile the pain that they're feeling with who God is in their life. Some just seek other sources, other idols for comfort. Or in those moments we turn to distraction, busyness, we just kind of get lost in our careers and our parenting. Or we escape to numb the pain. Or just try to avoid it altogether. But in every season of our life, Jesus' constant invitation is, come to me. Come to me. I'm here. I know. I can handle whatever you're feeling because I've been there. It's like the commercials say. He gets us. And in my darkest hours, I've found a lot of comfort in Hebrews chapter 4. These two verses, 15 and 16, say this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Just leave that up there for a minute. How does that speak to you today? What did you need to hear in that verse this morning? Yeah. Faith requires hopelessness? Yes. Okay, tell me more. Trust in God. Faith that I have in God, that no matter what I'm going to go through, God is going to be there to walk through it with me. Yeah. No matter how hopeless I feel, God is still there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't really know what we believe until it's tested, right? We can say we believe a lot of things until we're confronted with something that feels disorienting. And then we have to decide, do I really believe that? Am I really putting my faith, my hope in that, right? Anyone else have any reflections just on how this spoke to you today or what you needed to hear from this?
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just be reminded of the confidence of knowing when we approach his throne what it is that we're going to receive there, right? Not condemnation, not judgment, right? But mercy and grace to help us. The psalmist is saying, Lord, I'm back on my knees again before you. I'm giving this one more shot. Reminds me of, of times in conversation you might be having with somebody who you're kind of struggling, maybe you've kind of gotten crosswise with, where you pause. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, where you pause and you just kind of say, hey, time out. <laughs> hey, listen, like we're, we're missing each other here. And can we just take a breath and try this again? I feel like the psalmist is saying, hey, God, man, time out. <laughs> Enough with the waves. <laughs> I, I, for some reason, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just missing you here. And when does he cry out to God? What does it say? Verse 13. When? In the morning, in the morning, I've learned over the course of my life, just had a birthday this past week, getting older, right, that when I spend time with God in prayer and devotion in the morning, that is the key to my day. Because once the ball of life gets rolling downhill, it's very hard for me to stop and recenter myself, especially if you're a task-oriented person. I mean, the task and the next thing just never stop. And you can say, oh, I'm going to spend time with you at lunch or whenever, but for me, it's, it's, it's pretty much now or never in the morning. I have much better prospects of having a godly mindset and perspective on myself and others and my circumstances if I come to him first thing and get my mind right that's called orientation right let's look at verse 15 from my youth I have suffered and been close to death I have borne your terrors and am in despair your wrath has swept over me your tears have destroyed me all day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. So these last four verses are probably one of the reasons why this is called the saddest of Psalms. All right? Because there is just no turn towards reorientation here at the end. Lord, your wrath and terrors have swept over me 
destroyed me, engulfed me. Again, the message translation says it so vividly. It says, your wildfire anger has blazed through my life. It's a scorched earth policy. This is an agonizing cry with no resolution, no silver lining, no pretty bow. But did you also notice that there's no sign of anger or bitterness against God? Even when he doesn't answer, even when he seems to be the source of his anguish, So what are we to learn from this psalm? Well, one thing I think is just that life is unpredictable. It can be full of pain and suffering. It's really hard to predict when it's going to come, right? Everything can be fine. And then all of a sudden you get in a car wreck or you get that phone call or you get called into the office at work or whatever. And in a moment's notice, your life is just completely turned. And faith to be strong has to be tested by hardship. And here are a few things that I took away. One is that we are all going to find ourselves in a season like this at some point in our life. Many of us have already been there. If you haven't, you soon may be. At the very least, we're going to be probably walking with someone who's in a state of disorientation like this, and we need to know how to walk with them through it. Many of us can look back on seasons where we've had a lot of suffering and our life has kind of come unmoored. And now we can kind of look back and ponder, how could I have navigated that season of disorientation in a healthier way than I did last time? What new, what new tools, what new language, what new perspective, what increased faith do I have that might help me go through that in a little bit different way, a healthier way this time? Because those moments or where we really find out what we believe. Where we really find out about what we believe about God, about the events of our life, about ourselves and those around us. And again, in the midst of his anguish, Job was able to say, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. And as I was working on this this morning, um, the thought that came to my mind is that I think sometimes what really gets us disoriented is when we have this expectation that life is supposed to work out for us. That somehow God owes us this trouble-free life for some reason. Because when we have that mindset of I deserve whatever, or I've been doing the right thing, so God shouldn't life go like this. And then when it doesn't, (laughs) that can rock you, right? You thought you were going to do these things and get this result. You thought A plus B equals C. But then when it doesn't, oh, man. 
I thought I was doing all the right things in my marriage. I thought I was doing all the right things in my job. I thought me and this other person, we were on the same page and we were great friends and we were committed to one another. And then, bam, just like that, the rug gets pulled out from under you. So who is God in the midst of our disorientation? It's a really important question to ask. For one thing, unlike the psalmist, we have the benefit of living on this side of the resurrection of Jesus. So us here today, the church now, we have the ability to find hope in our darkest hours, so much greater than people in this time the Psalms were written could have, right? We know that God is the conqueror, right? The restorer, the rebuilder of all things. So just a couple of verses to cling to as we leave today, I wanted to give you. Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so if you're in that space right now of disorientation where you feel like, man, the waves just keep coming and they're just pounding me and God, I don't know how much longer I can do this. God is close to you. He is a perfect loving father who hates to see the suffering we endure in this corrupt world. And he is longing for the day that we, we will, when we will finally be free of this earth. In his presence where he will, as he promises, he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will no longer be death or mourning or crying or pain. He's close to us. And if you, you can't feel that or know that right now, I would just encourage you to be in community with some other folks who can, who can help orient you. You know, when you were a kid, um, you know those, we used to call them all kinds of things, whirly birds, you know, on the playground, where you'd get on and you'd spin it, you know, and spin it and spin it. Death traps is what they were, right? But you want to talk about feeling disoriented after a while, right? And, and, and part of the problem was that when you were on it, if they were really made right where they wouldn't stop, <laughs> there was no getting off. Like once that thing gets humming, you're just like, you're spinning and you can't make it stop. Unless somebody else came along and grabbed it and slowed it down for you and reoriented you, you were just going to keep going. Dizzy, 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 right? Sometimes when we're stuck in that spin cycle, somebody kind of views, we just need some other people to, to grab hold and just slow it down and just bring us back and help us focus again on what's going on. Finally, Hebrews 13.8. Hebrews 13.8 says this. 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In a world of shifting sand, where the floor can literally drop out from under us at any moment, we have a Father and a Savior that we can trust and count on. And if the Psalms teach us anything, they teach us this. That he's a father that we can scream at. He's a father we can blame and run from. Who will always show us grace and mercy when we approach his throne and seek his face. One who is always looking for us to come back to him. He's looking out the kitchen window, down the driveway, just waiting for us to say, but... God, I'm crying out to you. I'm coming back to you again. I'm giving you another shot to show yourself faithful. And guys, it isn't about our circumstances changing. I can't promise you that if you cry out to God for help, that the troubling things in your life right now are going to go away. I can promise you his presence. I can promise you the hope that we have in him. I can promise you that he's already done more for each of us than we ever deserved. And if we can approach him from that place of gratitude, it can give us some endurance to navigate the things that just seem so overwhelming for us. But guys, we need one another. So be humble enough to reach out, be vulnerable enough to come and just say, guys, I'm getting pounded by the waves and I just can't take it anymore. That's why we're here. Let's pray. God, as we come to the communion table today, we thank you for this reminder, this very visual and tangible reminder that you're here, that you're with us this morning. God, that you're broken. You were broken. You were broken for the, the pain and the corruption of this world, the death that you saw your friends suffering, the disease, the heartache, the confusion, the lostness. You wept over those things. You're not ambivalent towards us. You're engaged, you're tender, you're compassionate. God, as we come to the table today, help us to, to feel that. Lord, I pray that you would just meet us wherever we are today. If we're in a season of disorientation, then just meet us there. God, if we have a, a friend, a spouse, a child, whoever it might be in our life who is disoriented, that needs our orienting presence, God, help us to be that for them. Give us courage, give us patience, give us long-suffering to stay in the game, to not be like the other people who have walked away from them that couldn't handle their mess. God, we need, we need courage to do that for people, God. Help us and give us strength to be there. 
just hear our cries in this moment of silence now.